This is PeopleKind Politics. We're doing a PeopleKind News episode. I am Matthew. And I'm Taylor. And before we dive in today, uh, we are going to be talking about some more serious topics, including and mostly the uh, discovery of the mass grave of children and uh, what used to be a residential school in Kamloops, B.C., And I just wanted to say that up front, acknowledging that we are going to be talking about some regular goofy-ass shit as well, and that's fun, but also a reminder that, hey, this country is fucked up. So just want to throw that out there and a bit of a warning for you. Yeah, we're going to start off nice and light, and then we're going to get into some dark, serious subject matter. So let's go. Our first story is about a guy named William Amos, and we talked about him last, uh, maybe two episodes ago. He was the liberal MP that uh, was naked on camera during a uh, virtual proceeding of the House of Commons. Do you remember this, Taylor? I do remember this, indeed. How could I forget? Yeah, so, you know, we, I won't go over it too much, essentially. Yeah, he showed up naked. Uh, but our boy is back, back in the news for a similar um, mistake. This time, however... It was peeing. Okay, so William Amos, you know, he's attending a MP, or sorry, attending a House of Commons meeting virtually, and wouldn't you know it, he goes up halfway through it or whatever, and he urinates in front of the camera. Now, when I first read this story, I kind of imagined him sitting there and wetting himself, but then I I reread it, and it turns out they're not very clear on why the camera was on the bathroom and why Mm. the door was open. Like, I don't know his setup or anything. Maybe he pees. He sits and there's a door behind him, I guess. And he, what, he left the door open when he pissed? Yeah, so so what happened is that MPs saw him peeing, you know, on camera. Uh, It wasn't a public setting. Like, no one in the public saw this. And last time he was naked on camera, one of the MPs took a picture of him and sent it to the media, allegedly. (laughs) That's terrible. Oh, my God. Uh, There are no images this time of of our boy peeing, but... It's uh, it's quite bizarre. It's quite bizarre that after a month, you know, of a very embarrassing gaffe showing up naked on camera, he's now peeing in front of the camera. So, you know, repeated behavior, there might be something going on there. What do you think, Taylor? I just, yeah, like my worst nightmare with Zoom is, I don't know, getting caught on camera doing some weird shit. So like, <laughs> I feel like with the introduction of Zoom, and this is like not an old guy, right? Like he's what, middle-aged maybe? Yeah, he's like a middle-aged white guy, I think. like you should know how to fucking use a computer. Is it a voyeurism thing? Like I don't want to say that's it, but like with the introduction of Zoom, I feel like you're more vigilant than ever when you're in these calls, you know? I will say it's a voyeurism thing because it happening twice in a row. (laughs) I mean, mean, the the first time, you know, he's like, he just came from a jog, he starts changing. That in itself is pretty sus, but I don't know, man. You're peeing. Like, you know you're on camera, right? Like, you have to know you're on camera. But you can, like, turn off your camera, to be fair. Like, you can but do that. But he didn't. I know. He didn't. Yeah. So. Especially if the cam- if it's, like, a laptop or a webcam and he knows it's facing the door behind him. It's like you feel like you would double check, you know? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's um, It's bizarre. He, he posted a statement on Twitter. It reads, um, Last night, while attending a House of Commons proceedings virtually in a non-public setting, I urinated without realizing I was on camera. 
I am deeply embarrassed by my actions and the distress they may have caused anybody who witnessed them. While accidental and not visible to the public, this was completely unacceptable, and I apologize unreservedly. I will be stepping aside temporarily from my role as parliamentary secretary and from my committee duties so that I can seek assistance. Assistance for what? He's the one who said he needs assistance? Okay. When I first saw yeah. that, I was like, if somebody else is saying it about him, I'm like, yeah, I get it. You know, two times mm-hmm. in a row. But he, yeah, what, what's going on, my dude? Like, assistance with just <laughs> not being weird? What is this? Yeah, no, I don't know. Like, again, this is why I think it's a voyeurism thing, because he just gets so worked up in the House of Commons meetings. He's like, you know, it's, it's, it sounds pathological. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's very bizarre. <laughs> Because the only assistance you need is uh, maybe maybe uh, IT assistance with like <laughs> how to turn on and off the camera. Maybe he doesn't know how to work a, ca- a camera. But really, yeah. I don't know. I know. I mean, in Zoom, it's just I'm pretty sure they use Zoom or something, and it's just a fucking it's a button. It's like hide your camera right here. Here's the button. So or I don't know. or pee with the door closed. That works too. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I was going to say, you know, it's not an apology if he's not actually taking action, but look at him learning finally from whatever this is. Yeah, Yeah. so he's stepping down from his role as parliamentary secretary and the person he's secretary to, he's like, you know, I really hope Amos uh, gets some help. It's like, yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like he got know. ill and had to take leave or something. God. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre. I... I I keep saying bizarre because I really don't know what else to... When I saw this story, I was like, okay, well, I got to talk about this. There's really not too much to say except to kind of like point and laugh and cringe and be like, why, Amos? Why? Yep. It's him again. Striked again. And hopefully never again, I guess, if he gets the help he needs. Well, this seems to be an escalating thing. First, he's naked. Then he's peeing. We all know what comes after this, and that will probably get him fired, or mm. you know, he'll he'll resign. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, to- yeah, totally, bro. I definitely know what you're talking about. Yes, I get it. We're t- we're talking about Tubin here, the what? New York Times guy <laughs> the who what? masturbated. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's where I think this is gonna go, unless no. you know he gets assistance. I don't know. I I think it's a weird <laughs> sex thing. Yeah. Um, he should find, he should go on Omegle, you know, fulfill himself that way. No, don't, don't do that. I would not recommend that. <laughs> Their disclaimer, don't do that. Yeah. But yeah, again, in the reporting, everyone's like, we don't know what he's, what he's seeking assistance for. And, um, you know, I, I'm very curious. Maybe we'll find out later on, uh, what exactly he got assistance with mm-hmm. and that he received it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe in a couple months, you know, there'll be another update. We'll have to keep an eye out for it. Yeah, we're following this story very closely, folks. This is the Amos uh, tragic comedy, you know, being naked in the House of Commons. Yeah, this is it. But yeah, yeah, that's all I've got for that story. All right. So we are going to be talking about COVID again. God damn it, Taylor. (laughs) I didn't know this was going to happen, folks. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yes, you did. Don't you put this on me. Yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing thing. Obviously, we're still in this shit, and we're especially still in this shit uh, here in Manitoba. Extremely so, in a very, very bad way. Worse than Calgary and Alberta in general, which is pretty impressive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we we did it, folks. Number one in North America, or is it just? Yeah, North, it's North uh, Canada is it, is and the U.S. Is it the entirety? Sure. Yeah, Canada and the U.S. Definitely Maybe not number next. one. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I feel like you know there was a New York Times headline and everything. Like, wow, remember a whole year ago when Winnipeg had like two cases? Now look at them. They really fucked up this time. And uh, we did. We did fuck up, folks. I'm sorry to say. But it's been bad here. If you haven't heard, here in Manitoba, uh, the third wave hit us, and it hit us extremely hard. This is another story that's, like, not super funny to me. I'm not having a great time (laughs) over here. I gotta say, I'm pretty pissed, honestly, because the thing is, our ICUs are full. Uh, I think we had a peak maybe a week or two ago of, like, 500-something cases, 523 Mm. Which, numbers-wise, doesn't sound like much, but per capita, again, we're talking worst in Canada and the U.S., possibly North America. uh, Yeah, we don't know about Mexico. I'm not sure. I'm I'm pretty sure it was North America at one point, though maybe not now. But I think it actually got there, which is why it's so impressive, because, you know, this is, we're, what, 15, 15, 16 months into this thing. Mm-hmm. We knew this was coming. We absolutely, of course we knew this was fucking coming, but literally no preparation uh, happened, which is to say, you know, the government kept opening things or basically refused to close, refused to shut down schools, refused to shut down workplaces, and certainly both of those places are where we know uh, a lot of spread is happening because, surprise, that's where a lot of people are. Uh, but if you're if you're hearing it from Pallister, if you're hearing it from the PCs here in Manitoba, well, first of all, it was that school spreads don't happen, uh, and that was I think until maybe I think they changed their mind on that around two months ago, but up until that point, it was like not a thing. And who's Pallister again? Oh, of course. Who is he? Yeah, that's true. You know, we all like to shit on Jason Kenny and Doug Ford. And we should, because they're terrible. But people forget. Here in Manitoba, we got one of those too. And he's a ghoul. He's a gremlin. He has really big ears. And I don't like him. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he talks. He is a disgusting man. And he's the premier of the province. Yeah, so... Brian Pallister. You know, you elected him, Taylor. So, you know, you really know, can't it was be... me. Yeah. <laughs> It's me. I know the exact. We truly Manitobans deserve everything that came to them because we voted him in. That's how this stuff works. Uh, no, it's not. I'm being <laughs> extremely facetious. I hate that. I hate that uh, when people jump to that. I know this is going off topic, but like when the fucking snowstorm hit Texas and people were like, well, that's what you get for voting red, which is why you have all these privatized boop, 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 boop. It's like, bro, people are dying, my dude. Like, chill out. <laughs> why Why you got to be like this? So, uh, yeah. yeah. There probably is a little bit of a short in Freud, I think, because, yeah, like the conservatives in Manitoba are really bad, and yet they still have quite a stronghold in the hearts and minds of um, the voters for some reason. Uh, not anymore. Everyone hates them now. I think even the conservatives yeah. have been like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, bad guy. Yeah. Uh, incompetent. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's incompetent because incompetent would imply that like there was some interest or effort in actually putting together literally any response um, to COVID mm. and like actually putting restrictions and maybe even actually helping small businesses that they like to say they help so much. But there wasn't, you know, and there the science was there. The data was there. We knew this was coming again. This is fucking 15 months in probably 14 at the point they should have shut down um in late april because yeah i think at that point we had two 300 cases and actually something pretty fun that the deputy chief public health officer said whose name is what's his name his name is jazz atwell which is a pretty cool name to be fair so Mm -hmm. you know he gets points for that but he says And this was when it was super bad in Ontario. He said, you know, you you see what's happened in Ontario. You see what's happened in other countries where the whole system's basically collapsing. Obviously, we're not going down that road. That's not going to happen here. And that was on April 30th. (laughs) And uh, it it did happen, first of all. And we knew it was going to happen. Like, he, he literally lists other countries and Ontario and like, wow, we sure saw exactly how this happened here. But obviously, there's no reason it would happen here, even though everything's still fucking open and yeah. people are living their lives. But it's fine. We got it under control. Like, no, no. I mean, I mean, what's what's going on in Manitoba? I haven't really explained why, why it's so bad here, aside from the fact that they did nothing. But what does nothing actually look like? I would say contact tracing has never really been a thing here. No. Like, I think it was briefly, um, Mm. maybe in the summer, but like, usually the cases get to a point where nobody's really contact tracing. And then when you get community spread to where, you know, the test positivity ratio is 10 plus percent, uh, you're not going to be able to fucking tell where, where it's coming from. You're going to be able to say, oh, I was here at this time with COVID. So if you were there, watch out, especially if you're on a bus, fuck you. Um, (laughs) but actually tracking down and being able to isolate all those people is basically impossible, especially when you know, people are going out and living their lives and seeing their loved ones. And, well, they probably shouldn't have been doing that, but mostly working. Like when you're working with people, you're eating lunch with them, you're doing all this shit, you're going on the bus to get to work, your kids are in school, all this. It's like these cases don't just spring out of nowhere, which is how it's always situated by this government, especially where it's like, we did everything we could. Like, what do you want me to Mm -hmm. say? Um, It's like, did you? So I'm just, I'm just really exhausted here, man. Like, God. And uh, I think Manitobans are too, but I I don't know. What what are your thoughts on, what have you heard about Manitoba? Well, I, I heard that the ICU is filled up so, so much that they had to fly over patients to Ontarian hospitals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is accurate. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty shitty, huh? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think we were the only province who had to do that, too. Yeah, it's that's, that's not a great look, certainly, and not good for people who need ICU beds and, like, are dying because they either can't get to them or they die in transit. That has happened. Um, mm-hmm. And also people who need critical care that's not related to COVID you know, they're getting denied too because the capacity isn't there. So yeah, it's not just that's... COVID people dying. It's not to uh, say, you know, you know what I mean, but it's like it has a large impact that is bad. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. The you know, it's not just the COVID patients. People are still getting sick from other things, getting injured. So when your hospitals are overflowed, overflowing like that, very bad. But I always remember hearing like that the ICUs, like this was the big concern about them filling up. And I was kind of like, well, it hasn't happened yet. So in my mind, I was like, okay, so like maybe it's like like a very dire like last resort kind of thing that could happen. But yeah. It happened. Happened in Manitoba and mm-hmm. uh, and impacted a lot of people. So yeah, nice one, it Manitoba. Impacted Alistair. a lot of people, and it still is because they are certainly still full today. And we are still. I think I saw last week we shipped off our first person to Alberta. Alberta, dude. It's mm-hmm. like a fucking two and a half hour flight. Like Jesus Christ. And yeah, most people were in uh, Ontario. Let me look at my numbers here. I think this was as of June 3rd, but as of that time, we had, I think, 51 people out of province having to go to ICUs. So that's not great. It's pretty bad, I would say. And yeah, like you said, I mean, we haven't seen it happen yet in this country, even in the places where it's really terrible. Um, And I think there's a lot of Mm. reasons for that. Again, um, things were just not shut down here soon enough. And Pallister, our premier, will talk on and on and on about how we had the strictest uh, restrictions, the strictest restrictions in the entire country, mm-hmm. even compared to Ontario. And while he was saying this, he's like, our malls are only at 10%. And meanwhile, Ontario's malls were shut down, as they should be. Yeah. Yeah, I hate I hate talking about COVID so much, but I know it's important to you, so... Yeah, I get it. I get it can be, I don't know. I think if you aren't directly, directly impacted by it, um, it can be hard to understand the gravity of it. Or when you talk about mm. COVID deaths, especially in young people, like for instance, um, one of the deaths I saw, um, the recent ones in transit, which I think she was in Brandon, but she was getting ready to be flown out to Ontario and she was 31. And somebody would say, well, pre-existing conditions you know like yes it's sad that even young people are dying but like they had this list of whatever which even if that's true if it wasn't for covid if it wasn't for the fact that our icus were full they wouldn't have died right then and that's on the government yeah no uh no well one of the reasons why i don't like talking about this is just because it's all that we've had to think about for over a year now and also because to me it feels like we're reaching or getting very close to the end of this fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. But then you see things like this in Manitoba, and I saw a piece in the Toronto Star. I think about how you know the the the, the variant from India might bring about a third wave fourth. in Ontario. Oh, fourth you mean wave. A fourth wave. Yeah. I don't even know how many waves there have been because it, it, it'll be the fourth. Whatever wave it is, they're concerned that this variant will stir things up again, and so. Like, I don't know. I just, I just, yeah. Living in BC, like BC is doing pretty good right now because everyone's getting vaccinated. I'm being vaccinated on the 22nd of this month. So yeah, that's good. It's good over there. But I would say even where it's good, it's still bad. Like the thing is, uh, the reason why COVID is such an issue, why it gets so widespread, why there's been so many deaths is because governments won't shut down. And that's something we all share though. Well, to be fair, I think in Newfoundland, they are doing the COVID zero approach and it's gone much better. Surprise. But yeah, I mean, I guess I get it. But for me, it's just, yeah, 
I I really like to harp on it because I think people have a tendency to individualize this problem. And Harper, or no, sorry, not fucking Harper. Jesus Christ, <laughs> he's haunting me. But no, yeah. um, Pallister certainly has that problem, if you could say, or strategy where he's like, you know, it's in Manitoban's hands. You know, I did all that I could, which is nothing. But like, you know, it's just stop going out and seeing people. Just like maybe close things, <laughs> let people work from home. Yeah, and it's frustrating yeah. because again, people didn't have to die, people don't have to get sick, but this government, the way it runs, is cruel, <laughs> and it's not for anyone's benefit, but the people already in power, really. Oh, and here, you know what? Let me. We'll we'll wrap this up though, because yeah, I could rant about it forever, because I'm mad about it. But <laughs> let's wrap it up with some sweet, sweet Pallister quotes. Uh, to contextualize this, I think it was, there was a hockey game, a Jets game on June 2nd, and Brian Pallister, our very generous and just truly uh, good, <laughs> good premiere, let 500 whole people go to the Jets game, uh, including nurses, which they very generously uh, gave tickets to as if also, disclaimer, I haven't even touched on, like, what the conservatives have done to the province, you know, typical, but also very extreme austerity stuff. You know, they shut down ICUs a couple of years ago. Um, nurses have been stuck in this contract. They're fighting with their union right now. They might strike, like, spoilers, it's bad. This was pre-COVID, right? The shutting down of ICUs and stuff yeah. like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that that no, excuses I, it. <laughs> no, but, but, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even I think our ICU beds, I looked like apparently per capita, it's a decent amount, apparently. But it's mm. just if everyone gets sick at once, you won't have enough. Surprise. Yeah. But, you know, again, conservative government, they love austerity. Uh, they love cutting shit that we need. So that's the context. And yeah, this guy's now like, hey, go to the Jets game while we're still like 15 percent test positivity ratio, still three, four hundred cases a day. Like, and he said, I think we should take that as a sign, going to the Jets game, of some small amount of optimism that we can start to get our lives back here in Manitoba. <sighs> yeah. And also he said, um, we did better than everybody for a lot of this pandemic and worse than everybody for part of it as well. I would say most. I mean, we've been peak and valley, right? Which is just, oh, it's just the worst to hear him say that stuff. But, uh, oh, oh, wait, here's the best one. He said... It isn't for lack of preparation that this has happened. And uh, hmm. it is. <laughs> Spoilers, it is. So yeah, that wasn't really funny. I'm just pissed, bro. And I mean, people were... I do I do have my friends in Saskatchewan talking to me like, Hey, bro, sucks over there. And you said it too. Hey, sucks over there. Yeah. And now you know kind of why. It's, it's not because people in Manitoba are somehow different <laughs> and like... Well, well, I mean, I don't know if I would totally agree with that I think there is something in the Manitoba waters <laughs> that uh, yeah. do create a certain kind of Canadian that is, uh, <laughs> and I'm a Manitoban, so yeah, I can speak yeah. to this, you know. But yeah, so that's why COVID is shitty here in Manitoba, and it fucking sucks, and I hate it. Okay, so we're going to talk about magic mushrooms. Um, the ingredient, the psychedelic ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, is illegal in Canada, However, there was an exemption provided by Patty Hadju around last year, the health minister of Canada, and this exemption can be 
received if one uh, goes through the application process and takes the psilocybin under a uh, under a therapist. So as a therapy, a, a medical thing, right? Like with, mm-hmm. with weed, right? It used to be a medical thing. Yeah. So essentially... Well, it still is, yeah. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, so you basically take a trip with your therapist. And mm-hmm. um, this is only for terminally ill patients. And so someone who's going to die soon. And someone who has a like a crippling lifelong mental illness that uh, causes very much suffering. Very... That's hmm. sound like Borat there. A lot of suffering. Right. So, yeah. So... The, in order to get this exemption, um, you have to go through an application process that's very onerous. You have to prove a lot of things. And also, you have to renew it every year. Um, with the popularity of this kind of therapy for terminally ill patients, there's been a boom in both the nonprofit and for profit sectors. So, at this point, there are 119 exemption applications still awaiting review, and they've kind of stalled out. That's not because the Canadian government can't go through them. Instead, because it's been rising up so much, there's been some thinking that perhaps this is going to be a political issue for the liberals once the election comes around and, I don't know, this year, next year, the year after that, whenever the next election comes around. So Mm -hmm. when it was a smaller thing, I think the liberals were kind of okay with it just being like, oh, yeah, you know. For the terminally ill, we'll, we'll grant them this this one liberty. But now that it's becoming a bit more popular, um, they're starting to slow down the um, the passing of the applications or the, the reviewing and accepting of the applications. Although that's just conjecture on my part and those who are in these nonprofits that do the therapy, the, the magic mushroom therapy. And yeah, a lot of patients that were interviewed, I think this was done by the, the Toronto Star, you know, they said that this really changed their lives. Like, when you're about to die, you know, a lot of thoughts, I mean, I guess terminally ill, you can you can be terminally ill and still have like a couple of years left to live, but that creates a lot of suffering for people. And so this psilocybin, magic mushrooms therapy has been incredibly beneficial and it's getting more and more popular. But of course, because it's an illegal substance, you know, it's, it's heavily controlled. And now the Canadian government's getting a bit skittish, I think, around the popularity expanding. So that's kind of mm-hmm. shitty. Yeah, so so the therapists, you know, they um they want to take the psilocybin as well because that way they can actually guide their patients through the process. Hmm. One of the um, patients likened it to having a swimming instructor trying to teach you how to swim without knowing how to swim themselves. So it kind of makes sense, you know. Yeah, for sure. I don't know this this whole story is kind of incomprehensible to me. Honestly, I'm like, yeah, mushrooms good, uh, restricting mm-hmm. bad. You know, like the more availability, the better. Well, you just have to think about it like any other kind of uh, chemically induced therapy or, or a therapy that involves chemicals, you know. Mm. This just so happens to be an illegal substance, but it's been shown, you know, scientifically to have great results for lots of issues and with helping people come to terms. So, you know, I think this should be expanded. But as I said before, the liberals are getting a bit scared because you know, the conservatives will hit them with like, oh, the liberals are allowing everyone to do psychedelics now. We're all going to be tripping mm-hmm. out. Right. Because you can have bad trips and have very bad experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think people should be allowed to do what they want to do, you know, but there's a lot of misconceptions and fears around psychedelics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the really, the really kind of sick thing here is that like for, I think it was like three or four years ago, 
uh, legislation was passed in the House of Commons for terminally ill patients to have medically induced deaths, you know, mm-hmm. to instead of living and suffering to die instead, die on their own terms, which I think yeah. is a good thing. However, it's easier to get uh, to get access to uh, a medically induced death than it is to get psilocybin. And that's absurd. It's easier yeah. to die than it is to receive uh, psychedelics. Yeah, it's 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 disgusting as 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 usual. The liberals suck. But yeah, so you have these patients that, you know, desperately need this psychedelic to get through what is, you know, psychic torment, and they can't because the application process is very long, very difficult. They have to renew year after year. They also need to find therapists that have gone through or taken psilocybin. Mm. Which isn't always easy because now there's a big wait list now that, now that not for pro or now that for profits are entering the uh, psychedelic world, of course they are. So yeah, it's just a little bit of an unfortunate story, and I think more work has to be done in allowing people to make these choices about what they want to put in their bodies, especially if they are soon reaching the end of their lives. And honestly, I'm the libertarian, or I feel libertarian on this issue. I think everyone should be able to do. All kinds of drugs, man. <laughs> I don't know. That and that might be too simplistic, but yeah. that's kind of like my off-the-cuff feeling about the matter. Yeah. No, criminalization is bad. It it does nothing good. <laughs> does not benefit us, you know? Decrim that shit. But yeah, we know the libs won't do it. Yeah. And, and psilocybin, again, you know, it, it gets a very bad rep, but it's really not. It, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. We could have a more interesting conversation on this, but I think for now, uh, that will do it uh, for my story on magic mushrooms. Again, not a very funny story. This is not a funny episode. No, it's a and bit I'm of a, a bit bummer. Grumpy. And yeah. I'm already a bit grumpy today. So <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is how um, it's going. Thanks for sticking yeah. around, though. Yeah. They can't all be winners. Um, but I think <laughs> we're talking about important things, except yeah. for our first story, of course, which is just <laughs> The most stupid. important. <laughs> yeah, stupid. All right. So to get into our last story here, which again will be a heavier one, though, yeah, this episode in general is a bit of a heavier one, isn't it? It's uh, it's a downer, folks. It's a downer episode. Just yeah. what you need in the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, hey, we live in a downer world, man. Can't hide from this shit. We let's live talk about it. In a society, yes. Let's talk Whoa. about it, Taylor. Take it away. Yeah. So we're a bit late to this one with this, but. You know, of course, it's still important to talk about, and that is the uncovering of the what is God? What's what's it called? Mass grave. Yes, the uncovering of the mass grave, which held 215 children, um, in what used to be Canada's largest residential school, actually in BC, mm. um, Kamloops, and Sorry. by sick. Quimpic. God, I can't fucking say the name. I'm not going to do that. But yeah, this was found by a First Nation um, using uh, this ground penetrating radar, which I thought was interesting, but and interesting in the implications for the future um, in terms of finding these mass graves because we know there's more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a thing that happened. Uh, yeah, it's... I mean, I don't even know how to start talking about this like... I would say for anybody familiar with Canadian history and the history of residential schools, this kind of thing is not a surprise, but that doesn't make it any less like disturbing Mm -hmm. and just 
fucked up. It's not okay. And yeah, for this to happen, I think, too, it kind of brings up a lot of that trauma again. And also uh, recognition that as Canada, you know, we certainly were participating in genocide. And we are certainly, I would argue, still contributing to that genocide today. But I don't know. What were your thoughts when you first saw the news? Yeah, you really have to think about this, right? Like, the horrifying idea of, what was it, 215 kids, you said? Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. So, like, 215 kids died and were just ca- like callously thrown into a grave, covered up, not marked. And that's that's horrifying. It, it doesn't matter when it happened. The fact that so many children were just disregarded in that way, like... It's it, it's hard it's hard to put words to just how horrifying that is, mm-hmm. and cruel and inhuman. But yes. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. It's a uh, really really awful. And yeah, even thinking about doesn't matter when it was. I mean, this was recent stuff, man. I don't know if I haven't seen like when these specific remains could be dated to, but like you got to remember the last residential school closed in ninety eight. That's uh, mm. pretty recent. And, and that's 1998, folks. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 1998. That's that's a good point, actually, because you're like, oh, this is a century. Like, chill out, guys. It was fine. We're over it. But no, like 98. That's, yeah, uh, yeah that was math less than 30 years ago. Did I get I was, it right? Yes. Yeah, I was alive <laughs> before the residential schools closed. Same. That's uh, not good stuff. Yeah, and just, yeah, I'm really struggling with how to talk about this because I think it's really important, but it's just, it's a lot. You know, the first thing I'll say again, going back to calling this genocide, which is what I would call it, I will say in the original, or rather in the Truth and Reconciliation um, reports, or really reports that came out um a couple of years ago, they identified what happened as cultural genocide, Mm. which, you know, so they made a distinction there. But um, in the following years, I believe in 2019, when the inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women, girls to spirit um, dropped (laughs) when it dropped, you know, when they concluded with their report, they assert that no, like, and this is with regards to MMIWG, but like this is genocide. Like the fact that these conditions exist where these women are devalued and are viewed as expendable. Mm-hmm. And in this case, these children are viewed as expendable no matter, even if you're not taking a fucking machine gun to them and doing it in a really blatant way, it's still genocide. Yeah, like it's it's probably the case that, you know, a lot of them probably died from uh, tuberculosis or mm-hmm. diseases, but why do they get tuberculosis? It's because they weren't cared for. Their health and yeah. safety wasn't considered. Yeah, TB was a big thing in terms of residential schools. And I mean, the thing is, how did they die? Like the records, obviously these... These churches, these institutions, these schools, whoever's in charge, they are not keeping track of this, really. Um, The TRC Mm -hmm. found that, what is it? They found 3,200 recorded deaths, but imagine how many 
are not recorded right. And I think only maybe like two thirds of those had actual names attached to them, but that's what they Mm. found. And I'll also note that um, the TRC, again, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, apparently, you know, they had 139 schools like approved by the government to review for this commission, but really there were a lot more um, senator or used to be Senator Murray Sinclair, who was um, quite involved in this process. Um, He said that, you know, his guess would be based on everything. There was probably around 15,000 deaths, maybe more, um, Mm. and really over like a thousand schools. And they may not have all taken the exact same structure of residential schools, but the school where you're taking the indigenous kid away from his family and putting him somewhere, you know, that there was a lot more of those. So that's something to think about, too. Yeah, I, I don't know too much about the record. I know there's been a huge issue with, um, I remember, I think it was the TRC or those involved with that Truth and Reconciliation report, and they were trying to gain access to mm-hmm. uh, like the, the Catholic diocese records. Yes. And the thing with the Catholic Church is that they have dioceses or like, like territories all over Canada that are like they're kind of independent of each other so when you deal with one diocese you're dealing with one diocese you're not dealing with them all at the same time you have to go to them independently usually and some are cooperative and others are not and i believe also that the catholic church is only one institution one religious institution involved in these schools i think also the anglican church as well was involved mm-hmm. yeah you're right um the catholic church was quite quite prominent um, but like you said, it was Anglican as well. And that I believe the specific case you're referring to, though, you know, it's not just one, but the really prominent one that's been hitting the news again r- recently because um, of the government's response, which I'll get into a bit more. But it's about the St. Anne's Residential School um, and mm-hmm. how those survivors have been fighting in court since 2013 to, yeah, like you said, access those records. And it's not even just the church, like the government has access to these records too. And it's the government that's fighting them in court. And as of, I think this was maybe last year, as of last September, I'm not sure if there's been more money spent since then, probably, but as of last September, the government has spent $3.2 million um, fighting these survivors in courts to keep them from actually accessing those files. Um, and they did mm. actually have to release about... 12,000 documents um, because the Supreme Court ruled that they had to, but they released them heavily redacted, like basically useless at that point. I don't know how they got away with that. I guess Mm. they're still releasing them, but, you know, and it's still an ongoing thing because sure, we have them now, but we can't fucking get anything from these. Um, And, you know, the reason they're going to court and everything um, is because... You know, obviously, these are people who were there who experienced all of that trauma and pain and abuse. And I think in 2006, maybe the government introduced this Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, which was a thing they put into play as like kind of like a class action lawsuit, if you want to fucking if you want to call it that, like just something that people could use or like kind of just introducing that they can go through these channels to, 
get reimbursement. But obviously, as we see through this and just general the history, like you have to prove it's really fucked up, dude. Like if you look at the forms, it's like, okay, so it's like number based. So it's like, okay, you got sexually Mm. assaulted. That's a five or something, you know, and you have to go through that whole process. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's fucked, dude. And like you have to go through that and get it approved and like evidence and like it's jump through all those hoops just to get some compensation monetary, which will never, you know, (laughs) take those experiences away. But it's something. Um, But even getting the money, the government makes it as hard as possible. Yeah, of course, because, you know, as much as Trudeau will, you know, cry his 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 fake tears What's that term Mm -hmm. called for fake tears? Uh, Crocodile tears. Yeah, Justin Trudeau's crocodile tears, you know, they want to speak, you know, about how much indigeneity is important, how this was a tragedy, a genocide. I don't know if Trudeau's used that language specifically. Perhaps he has. But that's all all language, right? When you're actually dealing with the court systems and the government's... um, lack of interest in helping these people, that's where it really comes out. That's where you really see where mm-hmm. their head and heart is at. Justin Trudeau can, you know, perform all he wants, but unless he actually does something or enforces his government to do something to rectify, I mean, he can never rectify fully the situation, but he can certainly take material steps. Uh, he won't. He'll just say he's very sorry and cry. I don't know. Like, f- <laughs> fuck you, Trudeau. That's all, all yeah. I'm saying. Fuck Trudeau, but also fuck literally everyone in the Canadian government. Fuck Canada, man. Fuck this country. It sucks. Oh, yeah. I do, Not I just do feel kind of bad about, you know, having our Canadian logo, but we are a Canadian podcast still. We out here, you know, I have my fucking shitty one Canada 150 sweater that's comfy, so I still wear it. <laughs> but like, I am not proud of this country and nobody should be really because, yeah. It's a fucked up country. This is this is not history. I'll I'll read off um, Trudeau's initial response, which was on, yeah, I think it was the Sunday he released it and he posted on Twitter. I don't think like he did a video. I don't think he posted on like his official website or anything, but he just made this tweet that the news that remains were found at the former Kamloops residential school breaks my heart. It is a painful reminder of that dark and shameful chapter of our country's history. I'm thinking about everyone affected by this distressing news. We are here for you. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Thoughts and prayers, you know. Literally thoughts and prayers. And also like, I'm thinking about you. I'm here for you. Are you really there for indigenous people when like, I think at this point, 39, I think 39 um, First Nation communities still don't have clean water like are you are you there for them i'm i don't think you are i'm pretty sure you're not like well trudeau's yeah trudeau's plan is that um if you're thirsty you can just uh drink his tears you know (laughs) a little salty a little Uh, salty but you know it's it's nourishing no it's gross you know trudeau is not a friend to anyone except for donors and (laughs) those who can keep him in his powerful position as the prime minister of canada Mm-hmm. Uh, you know yeah and it's just, a weak apology very oh, weak yeah if you can i don't did he say sorry you know he didn't say sorry anywhere it wasn't an apology he's just saying yeah it's painful of our dark and shameful chapter again as if it's not still an ongoing thing as if there aren't 
I don't even know, hundreds of thousands people living today who went through these schools, you know, their families who are impacted by this, the parents mm-hmm. of the kids who got torn away, the communities that got decimated because of this, the kids who died. Like, it's not a dark, I mean, it is dark and shameful, certainly, but it's not a chapter of our history in the sense that it's over. <laughs> it's still very yeah. much ongoing. Yeah, exactly. And Trudeau likes to use the language of distancing and you know, mm-hmm. yeah, this happened, yeah. you know, past tense. And, you know, people who were in those schools are still alive today. And lots of communities have suffered from it as a result. You know, trauma carries on in your life. You can't. And also, you know, ways of dealing with trauma. If you don't have a lot of money, if you don't have a good support system, then you might find ways that are a bit more destructive in helping yourself deal with these haunting, horrible, traumatic memories and experiences. Mm-hmm. For sure. And like, I feel like, okay, I haven't really, I mean, we haven't really explained what residential schools are and what they do and why they're bad. I mean, I assume most people listening have an an idea. But to be fair, like thinking of my own education, I don't even remember learning about it. I think maybe it was like a paragraph in my grade 10 um, social studies textbook. But like, Mm. It was not something that was taught to me, certainly through the education system. And I know they're getting better at it now. But even with that, it's very much a whitewashed history where it's like the language Trudeau is using, where it's oh, a dark chapter in our past. Um, or thinking about back to what Aaron O'Toole said, where he's like, you know, fundamentally, they were good. They were trying to do a good thing. You oh, know? Right, yeah. It's like they uh, they weren't. They were not trying to do a good thing. And looking at the history which is now more accessible than ever but yeah if you're somebody who hasn't specifically or maybe I should be more specific like myself we're disclaimer we're both white I think we've said that before but like I'm a white settler here in Manitoba you know here in Winnipeg um I had to pretty much seek out that information myself or like I don't take a native studies class at university if I hadn't done that, I would know nothing. But I'm curious about your experience. Right. Well, my experience, you know, I went to uh, a private Christian school. And oh, when yeah. you think of the word private, <laughs> it, it was not ritzy. Honestly, we had no, barely any extracurricular uh, activities or anything. It was a very poor, shitty school. I won't name it. I won't dox them. But yeah, a bad school. Good teachers, good students. But the entire, there were issues. Anyways. So yeah, we didn't we rarely ever talked about these issues, if if at all. In mm-hmm. Canadian history it focuses mostly on the Canadian or the English and the French fighting. They didn't really touch too much on these issues. And I remember for university, uh, I started university in twenty fifteen and then I think it was a year after that that there was legislation, at least for Manitoba, I think, that said to pass a mm-hmm. uh, to get mm-hmm. your undergraduate degree you have to take one course in in indigenous studies mm. and i remember that being a big there being a big uproar about that do you remember yes. that taylor well i will correct you there i don't think it was okay. like it's certainly i don't think it was legislation that was passed through like the government or anything um, oh my bad because it's just university of winnipeg sorry to uh, docs but there's only two universities <laughs> here so it's not like yeah but that's something I'm pretty sure that's something that University of Winnipeg chose to do as an institution. And there was still an uproar, even though like nobody I know went to University of Winnipeg. But 
I know like even one of my more, she might say woke friends was like, yeah, but like, what if it messes with your degree or something? And like, I don't, I just don't see why we should be like forced to take it. It's like, well, first of all, in an undergrad, like you're taking your electives anyways. So false. And like I said, um, this education needs to be taught. Um, these stories mm-hmm. need to be told because again, this is not, it's not history. This is what, where we are right now. This is what Canada is. This is what Canada is doing. And when you don't have that context, it's very easy to um, kind of fall into those common beliefs or whatever you want to call it. Um, that like, oh, maybe, first of all, maybe not all First Nations or not, not all, oh God, but like maybe like not all the residential schools were bad or like some people had good experiences, which of course, you know, sure, some people did, but the majority didn't. And like, uh, just it changes your perspective of indigenous mm-hmm. people in Canada, honestly, because yeah, they face a lot of shit. They have higher poverty rates, you know, higher rates of mental illness, drug use, all of that stuff. And it can be easy to look at that and come to a bad conclusion. But when you actually look at the historical context and the current context, you can actually understand why those conditions exist and also how the government very much doesn't care today. Just to circle back around, you know, we talk about the importance of learning about this history and understanding it and making an effort to educate ourselves. Uh, But what is the history? So, again, if you aren't super familiar with residential schools or you know a bit, basically, uh, there's a lot. Listen, Mm -hmm. you know, this is in around the time of, you know, 1860s, 70s, 80s, you know, after or around the time that Canada is being established as a country. Uh, We got our first prime minister, John A. Macdonald. All that stuff is going on. And obviously, a lot of other shit has been going on, too, um, in terms of indigenous relations and just Canada um, and that relationship. You know, you have the Indian Act, all that stuff reserves. You know, we're introducing this infrastructure Mm -hmm. all throughout this. And something that they think is a good idea, um, well, not a good idea, you know, indigenous people are viewed as, were viewed and probably still viewed as a nuisance by the Canadian government because these are people who are here on the land, occupying space, not contributing to whatever Canada is doing as a society and their production and their profit. It's a little more complicated than that. If you look at the history of Canada's founding, like there there were allegiances, there were trading that happened. It wasn't just that they were a nuisance. A little bit more complicated than that, but you definitely have the vibe of like these people. Yeah, they, it wasn't a good view that uh, settlers had of, of people who were originally here first. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't it wasn't as like black and white as that, I would say. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And especially in the beginning, um, you're totally right. Like settlers would come and establish those relationships 
again with ulterior ulterior motives i think but yeah you know you got Mm. the fur trade hudson bay company all of this stuff and even you know when the treaties when a lot of these treaties were made the indigenous people were making those in good faith right and like you know going i'm Mm. not going to go into the politics of treaties it's all fucked up but basically you know you have a written document but you're saying something completely different um that's what the canadian government did with a lot of those with the treaties that they were able to get together mm-hmm. where you have this established relationship and you're proposing something that should be mutually beneficial but in the end you know <laughs> i mean look this is a huge country how much of it is occupied by first nations people not much and that's what canada wanted so yeah that's a good point too though about you know the origins of that relationship and how even when I think about the original settlers, I mean, I guess a lot of it um, coming to America wasn't just to come and initially establish, you know, a new society, but like gold rush and stuff. Would that be accurate to say? I don't That's That's my um, impression. It wasn't it wasn't genocide right from the get go. No, what and I'm I, trying to say. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's important to to keep in mind you don't have to have evil nazi like uh genocidal (laughs) desires in every single settler to have a huge uh tragedy and 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 horrible things that happened it's it's complicated i'm not trying to like like say oh yeah the colonialists they were helping um (laughs) they you know it's very complicated that's all i'm trying to say i I don't want to fall into the easy narrative of the evil colonials (laughs) and then the the romanticized yeah. um, indigenous person, because it's not that's not the way that it was. But certainly, mm-hmm. the introduction of colonialists to Canada was overall a horrifying nightmare <laughs> for yes, indigenous yeah. people. If if not initially, you know, it didn't take too long. And you know, even looking at like smallpox and the strategic spread of that, you know, like there's a lot of fucked up shit. But yeah, you're right. It wasn't necessary. It didn't start off super fucked up. And then it it got like that, which is why again, yeah, like you said, it's complicated. It's a it's a history. It's good to learn about. So if you haven't, you know, get out there. You should you should do that. It's important to know about the history of our country before you know the fucking Europeans and French showed up and started fighting. Like, what about the other people here? You know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, okay. So that was a tangent, but basically. <laughs> Residential schools, they're a thing that really existed to civilize, Christianize, and assimilate the indigenous population into Canada. Assimilation meaning ridding people, ridding children of their culture so that they can function in society as Canada wanted them to because, you know, their culture, their what they ended up getting out of the reserves, everything, even that was still not ideal for Canada. And Mm. so the residential schools were a tool for them to take children out of their families, put them in school. They got numbers, usually their head was shaved. You know, we've talked about the significance of hair to anyone, really, like having your head. Oh, yeah, you don't know that? No, I just want you to expand on what that means. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, like they got assigned numbers like you would in a prison, you know, how mm. like, oh, you're 242 or something. So they don't have a name. 
um their hair got cut which again like not good for any kid but you know when it's especially important to you and your culture that's not great um Mm -hmm. general uh they split up the boys and the girls uh completely sometimes if there was siblings they would even split them up across different schools Mm -hmm. um or just not let them interact with each other uh they spent half of the day just working in the school and like cleaning and cooking and stuff like that and much of what they were taught was more basic skills like cleaning and cooking and i don't know trade stuff for boys um you know and the way this was proposed is that again it's to civilize these communities or these individuals these kids right mm-hmm. and maybe i'll read this quote from john a macdonald in 1883 again the first prime minister of canada um this is what he had to say about residential schools so when the school is on the reserve the child lives with its parents who are savages And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department, um, the Department of Indian Affairs, I think. Actually, I'm not sure if it was established at that point. I'll talk a bit more about that later. But as head of the department, that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. Yikes. Um, Yeah. Any any more thoughts beyond yikes? It is yikes. I agree. Yeah. I I think you'll probably maybe you'll get into this, but residential schools did go through an evolution, not an evolution, but they did change throughout the years, right? The decades? Yeah. Well... I mean, what do you think of when you think of change? I, I guess the, the main point I want to talk about or to touch upon is that you don't necessarily have to have like a Charles Dickens style of school where it's just constant torture and horrifying behavior. Mm. That certainly did occur. And I would say probably more so early on. What I want to touch upon is just the the banality and seemingly the seeming charity of these schools for these children that masks what is actually a horrifying occurrence, which is robbing a child from their family and forcing them into a culture that is pretty fucked up, honestly, in the way that they're treated, the abuse and whatnot. But you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to have, like, even... I, I need to do more research on this, but even... Because I remember I read a book about, I think, either it was fictional or nonfiction. I think it was called Indian Come Horse? On. I don't oh. know. Oh, yeah. No, you know what I'm talking about? The Indian hockey horse. one. The hockey one, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you give these kids like fun things to do and whatnot, the system they're within is still one which is intent to change their entire being and, and divorce them from their culture and family and community, which is horrible. At least I think it's horrible. Mm hmm. Yes. Did you, you know the point I'm trying to get to? I'm trying to say this yeah. delicately, well, but. A couple of couple of things okay so yeah the history of residential schools and how that transformed or what that looked like initially it was much more focused on the christianized aspect of it for sure and it was much more earlier on headed by um the which which church the catholic church 
thank you. <laughs> Took me a while to think about that. Um, it was much more um, a project of something that was assigned to the Catholic Church, for sure. Um, but to, I would disagree, though, that I, I, would, I think I would just disagree that, you know, obviously, I think it was all bad. But really, based on the stories I've heard, um, experiences from survivors, I don't think it got much better even later on. Like, you're still being beat if you don't speak English or French. You are still being sexually molested, um, sexually assaulted by the priest of the school. You're still, you know, like you said, the cultural stuff is huge here, but the abuse was really prevalent even to its later years. Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. it went away. Maybe it got more subtle, sure, but the sexual assault is something that was always there. The abuse was always there. Certainly, like, emotional, mental, but physical, too. Right, um, but that's not... So I would I would agree that that would continue on throughout. But what I'm saying is that the outward-facing um, agenda from the schools would change, I would imagine, because... Right. Because like if like I, I just can't imagine there being a continuity between 1867 and 1998, even if these yeah, abuses yeah, I, and things, I think I see what. Yeah. The abuses yeah. can still occur, but the official agenda of the school might be more nicer sounding. But mm. that to me is worse in some ways because it obfuscates the horrors that did occur that did occur in what you're talking about with abuse and whatnot. Yeah, I see what you're saying then. Yeah, I mean. I just, there's, yeah, like, I don't think if John A. MacDonald was there in, you know, 1990, I don't think he would have said that. I I mean, I will note by the end, they were transitioning out, right? Though, yeah, the last one closed in 98. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Yes, the outward facing um, kind of reasoning behind the school how it's benefiting kids whatever however you want to say it would change but also like i mean yeah of course it would change and like uh, i don't know i don't really know where do you well, want to say more on that well the, the point i'm really trying to get across is that you don't have to have an evil charles dickens style like slave school where like you're you know working in some horrifying factory mm-hmm. to have still a very terrible and horrible thing happening. What I'm trying to say is that you can have evil occur without it looking at all evil or genocidal. That's what I'm trying to get across. And that yeah. to me is perhaps the more the more disturbing part of the residential schools is how accepted they were for so long. But Yeah. I, I would need to do a bit more research. I think I think you're better read on this subject than I am. I just Yeah. I mean I think I get what you're saying. Yeah, and like how it was so widely accepted um, and obviously still pursued by the Canadian government, you know, still facilitated by the Canadian government, um, still all that. And obviously uh, the thing is like people involved in the system, though, yeah, outwards to people who weren't really a part of it to, you know, any Canadian they might not have put much thought into it. Or honestly, I don't know how prevalent, like, yeah, just the thought that it was 98 when the last one closed is, you know, it's fucked up. Mm -hmm. But I would say people involved within the system, you know, and I get get it, I get it. You know, it doesn't have to be super outwardly, always abuse, always sexual assault. I get it. But I, I also don't want to downplay how prevalent it really was. 
Like there was so much, mm-hmm. my dude. Um, no, and I wouldn't and want to. And everybody down. involved yeah. knew that too, and they would hide it however they could. You know, Th- that's why there's barely any documentation. They knew it wasn't good, and the reason mm-hmm. why it started transitioning out is because you know uh, they started recognizing, hmm, this isn't really working. You know, the kids aren't coming out good because you know they turn eighteen and they're still in grade five. Because they spend half the day working on the school and cleaning and doing labor as children. And obviously they've been torn away from their community. Again, when you're in residential school, it's not like you go for the day and you go back home, right? Yeah. Or at least for most of them. You're there. You're there for the entire school year. And then maybe if you're lucky, um, you get to go back to your family in the summer mm-hmm. after you've been like, you know, beat down the whole year and not allowed to speak your language, not allowed to, oh yeah, they strip you of your clothes too, of course. Um, yeah. You know, they just make you a number there. That's all you are. No, and I, I do not want to downplay the horrifying, the horribleness of these institutions. My point is just to say that that horribleness is obfuscated by a more banal and seemingly charitable uh, program, but the horror still continues, of course. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah, masked. certainly. Yeah, and that's how Canada continues to try to um, frame it, really, though maybe not necessarily that it was a good thing, but that it wasn't as bad. And like Aaron O'Toole. Yeah, exactly. The intentions were good, so, you know, it's fine. Like, But again, when you when you just think about what these schools are and what they're doing, and when you read from the people who are involved in their creation and the facilitation of them... You know, you're taking the Indian out of the kid. Like, that is not okay. And obviously all the kids who died along the way, um, <laughs> certainly not okay. Not all the kids. Just culture is part of who we are. You're stripping people of their identity. Um, and that was the goal. But yeah, I mean, I get get what you're saying. Yeah, and in, like, yeah, I'm thinking if I didn't have the full context, like, it doesn't seem so bad, you know? Even if, like, or if you don't know about the abuse, but even if you do, you can think, oh, it was just, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to think about, because um, I didn't know about it before, um, but it's hard to think about going back to that place in my mind. And to me, it just seems so obviously bad, like, when you're tearing kids away from their home, right? From their parents. Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't see how that's not bad, but I get, but the whole thing is that, you know, indigenous people are quote savages um and uncivilized and we need to civilize christianize and assimilate them and we're doing a good thing through this but really i don't think that was ever the intent i think it really was to in a way and you know going back to the genocide i don't like looking at this there's no way you could think this could be successful and the kids that came out of this could especially when they're again they're in grade five and they're 18 how can you say oh we want them to get a good education when you aren't even giving them the full curriculum um it was very basic and then also you're putting them to work all day like mm-hmm. it just it's just bad no <laughs> we're we're both we're both in agreement know, that residential schools are evil horrible institutions i don't know i feel like we're talking in circles a bit and like it is a hard <laughs> thing to talk about because yeah it's bad first of all it's really just awful to think about and know that this is our country but important to think about at the same time and you know the history that led up to it Mm -hmm. everything that happened throughout um and all of 
again, you know, it's not just a dark chapter. We are certainly seeing the effects today. People, again, are still alive who went to these schools, their families. Um, mm. You know, it's it's ongoing. And having this grave revealed is just a reminder that as Canada, we have a long way to go. Maybe what I'll say is read TRC, read the... MMIWG report, like at least the summaries, at least the calls to action, because it helps put into context and perspective how much needs to change um, Mm -hmm. to actually see any sort of liberation for indigenous peoples and like thinking about things like land back and reparations, you know, like that kind of shit is really what it will take to get to anything even close to reconciliation um, which is why it's insulting when people like Trudeau just are like, oh, I'm thinking of you and I'm here for you. Like, you're really not. So, yeah. Um, and there's there's been a very big emphasis on apologies, especially from the Catholic Church. And, and, and I will say this, you know, apologies are not unimportant, but they are very symbolic in a lot of ways. And I think mm-hmm. I think it's very easy to push for an apology I read a uh, editorial in the National Post and this guy, I think Raymond D. D'Souza or whatever, he was like, the Catholic Church has already apologized mm. in the 1990s, <laughs> but that was nah. in Rome. They didn't come to Canada and do a... <laughs> but I think the focus on apologies is kind of fucked up. I think what really needs to take place along with apologies is material um, policies and, and actions because apologize all you want. An apology won't help the people that were suffering that are suffering from these from from these schools. Mm-hmm. So I th- I think the the focus on apologies is like okay, but it is it's also it's also damaging because like fine you get an apology then what what else like you you need more than an apology. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, yeah, and I've seen people. Oh, noise. We're gonna have to end this quick. I've seen people talk about the Catholic Church as well. And yeah, I don't think apologies are bad. I don't think like changing mm-hmm. the names of things are bad. You know, they're good and I encourage them. But yeah, that can't be the end goal. Um, there is literally so much work that needs to be done. Um, and the government is not on board with that. You know, we mm-hmm. really need to work together as a community, as people because we need to recognize like this is not going to get fixed by the people in power it just isn't so far no yeah then al- always no <laughs> let's emphasize mm-hmm. that always no and if it if anything does come out of it it's because of people pressure not because you know trudeau woke up on the good side of the bed one day and he's like yeah i'll finally get them that water like no it's it's people who can really make the difference so i think you know if this is something that was surprising to you or, you know, you have people in your life who don't know as much, who are kind of racist, maybe just ignorant. Talk to them about it, you know, like don't keep this to yourself. Have conversations about why this is not OK um, and keep educating yourself. Like I said, read the reports. They're out there. It's easier than ever. Read the biographies of people who have experienced these schools because mm-hmm. it will definitely change the way that you think about these things. Yeah, for sure. And like I will say, the TRC um, has a lot of those accounts too. Mm-hmm. Personal accounts from people who lived through it. And yeah, I'd really, really, really encourage 
you if you haven't yet to go through those reports. They're long, I know, but you know, there's the summary at least and just just familiarize yourself with it, you know. Yeah, don't be Aaron O'Toole. Don't be like residential schools were uh, kind of okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, what no, a No, they were not. But yeah, so just a really awful awful thing to be unveiled and oh, another thing I'll mention. Um I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2019, but I think it was either offered or proposed that the Canadian government spend like 2.5 million to search for these graves and they turned it down. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. And that's from our boy Trudeau, the extremely woke and, you know, but he's all words is the thing. And yeah, just another reminder of that with this news. And, you know, my heart goes out to everybody who is really hurt by this and like the trauma it's just fucked up yeah um anything more to say taylor or yeah i don't know i think we covered a lot just residential schools were bad if you didn't know the government is bad if you didn't know and like yeah this is just again another reminder of that i don't know it's heavy stuff yeah this has been a bit of a downer episode a bit of a rambling one too but you know that's what you come here for, for rambling and for semi-coherent thoughts. Mm-hmm. And hopefully come back because, yeah, this, I mean, as, as poorly as we do address these issues, I mean, we do our best, <laughs> but they're important. They're very important. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, thanks for sticking around, sticking through it. Yeah, but uh, that will end our episode for this week. Um, As always, you can find episodes on peoplekindpolitics.com. We release an episode every Tuesday. We, yeah, you know the drill. If you've listened to other (laughs) episodes, you know know the drill. You don't need to blabber on too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, just go to our website, peoplekindpolitics.com. All the stuff is there, you know. If you're listening, I mean, I guess you're listening to this, so you don't need a recommendation for a podcast platform, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So next week, we'll do our People Kind of Canada episode on Anime Paul, who is the current leader of the Green Party. We skipped mm-hmm. over her, but we kind of talked it <laughs> over. And, you know, we should definitely touch on her very short career, but it should be interesting. You know, we're going back to the Greens. And then that will end our focus on the leaders of federal parties to where we go next. Who knows? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Taylor doesn't I know. know. I, d- I don't know. It'll be exciting, though. Looking forward to it. Stay tuned. So, I guess as always, this has been your place for depressing and horrible Canadian regurgitation. (laughs) 